morning. I want to welcome you to Rivermont today and invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 11. While you're turning there, how many of you were just bracing your backs for Ron to pop that balloon? I, mean, <laughs> I can see people here on the front were just kind of like, oh, I hope he's not going to pop it. We continue our study of the life of David today and we come to a chapter in which David's descent is witnessed and seen and described and it's it's one of those passages where it makes me believe all the more in the truth of God's Word. Because if you wanted to prop up the best king of your people ever, you wouldn't include this story in the testimony of your nation. If you wanted everyone to think how great you are, you wouldn't include in your testimony how your very best ruler did something so despicable. It seems that Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 may have been written about David and maybe it's written about me and you when it says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It certainly was true in the story of David and Bathsheba here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The story is one ultimately about pride and failure over against the height of success. Chapter 10 of 2 Samuel 11 is the story of David's conquest of the Ammonites and the Syrians, the most powerful and the most potent and the most persistent enemies of God's people. And now David's might held sway over them all. In fact, with that victory we see in chapter 10, David was economically and politically in control of the entire area. The trade routes from Egypt all the way up to Syria were now under David's control. This shepherd king of Israel knew no bounds to his power and his ability to rule. And in that situation, a person might be tempted to believe that he can handle anything. A person might be tempted to believe that he could follow after his heart's every inclination because look at all of my success. One might be tempted to believe that we really don't need the Lord at all. I wonder if any of us are at that place in our lives on the top, feeling wildly successful and feeling no need of a Lord. Brings us to chapter 11. Enamored with all of his success, David traveled that path from success down toward failure. Second Samuel 11 will begin in verse 1. In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. 
When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to what you have for us here in your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us not only to see, but you would give us faith to follow after you. You would give us faith or to turn to you and repent and be encouraged with your eye upon us. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Perhaps like you, too many times that I would care to count, I've watched this sort of thing happen. I've seen it happen with quite a number of my pastor friends who walk down this road of completely destroying their lives, their marriages, their families, their churches, their ministries through sexual sin. I've witnessed too many church members and other friends to count. And more often than not, it seems that each one of them were genuinely surprised when it happened. But the truth is that it never just, quote, just happens. But rather, as Jesus says in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles the person. From out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. What Jesus is telling us is these things are already in our hearts. Whereas Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. These things don't just happen to us. But rather, these things happen because we turn to strategies that we think will give us relief from the brokenness of our lives in this world to distract us from the pain of living in a place where we long and we search for satisfaction and it always seems to be just outside of our grasp. And whenever in our lives we we search for relief or we search for satisfaction from our feelings of pain and brokenness, no matter the cost, then these are the kinds of things that come out. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, false witness, and slander, just like Jesus said. Why? Because these are the things that provide an illusion of feeling better, even if it's for just a little while. Even if we feel better, we feel distracted from the pain in our lives, even for a little while, and all the while we know it's probably going to destroy us. But just for a little while, I may feel better. You know, the sin in our hearts never just happens. There's a well-worn path that we travel. And the Lord here in this text calls us to get off of that path and return to him in repentance. Here we see in this text our, our brother in the Lord, David, seeming in a free fall from the height of his reign to the depths of adultery and then murder. And this text is given to us to warn us about the patterns in David's life that we see in our lives too. Whenever we read this text, as you and I ask the question, am I capable of that? It's a natural question to ask, isn't it? Could I possibly fall into such depths as this? And the answer is a resounding yes. 
Absolutely, of course, we are each one capable of something like this. And as we see David's errors and we turn from them, we plead to the Lord and by his powerful spirit that he would help us and he would heal us because every one of us are capable. What do we learn as we watch David descend on this path toward destruction? And what are the warning signs for you and for me? that the Lord would call us to get off of the path ourselves. Well, the first thing that we see on David's path of descent is the illusion of control. You know, today we talk about a flaw in our character and we, we excuse it. Sometimes we joke it off, we, but rarely do we repent of it. The issue is control. We laugh it off sometimes. It's, hey, look, I, I know I'm just a control freak. David was a control freak. And it led him to this. He enjoyed terrific success in war. In just chapter 10, he had conquered his most threatening enemy. He was in economic and political control of the whole region. And this shepherd king, the the one who was accountable to God for, for ruling and leading, who would rule in justice and compassion, the light of the world, the one who was to spread peace and spread grace to the whole region, right? Except for his character, this controlling side of his character. All of his might and all of his success blinded him to how he was willing to abuse his power by control. The narrator wants us to clearly see that control in David's life as the way he described this action. It only took five verses to describe what happened between David and Bathsheba. And the, the way that the episode is written, it's, it, the discussion is abrupt, it's curt. It's almost like David is, is barking orders for people who were pawns on the battlefield of his game to follow. It says he sent someone in verse 3 to inquire about her. He sent someone to bring her to him. Actually, the text literally says he sent someone and David took Bathsheba. And then when the deed was found out, he slipped into more command and control. He sent, verse 6, Joab, saying, send Uriah to the front of the battle. And further, he had this, this plan of being under control, being invincible. And it led him from adultery and his scheming and his control. And it led him to murder of one of his most loyal servants. Additional murder of other servants of David. Do you hear all the control? Do you hear all the, the strategy? Do you hear how he's got all the pawns arranged according to his design and he's moving them around on the chessboard? He was blinded by a sense of control and success and David lost the ability to distrust his heart. I wonder if you and I have lost the ability to distrust our hearts, to interrogate our hearts, to suspect be suspect of our hearts and what we find inside of them. The lesson for you and for me is that when we feel the most competent, when we feel like we are at the top of our game, that's the place when we are in the most danger. Whenever you feel like, I could never, don't finish that sentence. Because you are primed for a fall. Because our hearts are deceptive. And when we get the sense and get the feeling that maybe God isn't really all that important to my success. When we begin to feel competent to live the Christian life. And whenever we begin to think, you know, God, I've got this. 
then no friend, you're in a very dangerous place. John Piper once said that the most effective ministry is done out of a sense of desperation. I think he's right. And it's not only true about doing of ministry, it's true for living the Christian life. The most faithful, the most effective Christian life is one that is lived in desperation, dependent upon the Spirit to keep us from acting on the things, the sins, the, the, the desires that lurk within our hearts. We're desperate for the Lord to do something because of what we know is inside of us. And in the place of our ease and our comfort, every one of us would be wise to memorize that prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any offensive way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need that prayer because our hearts are deceptive. We can be so blind and we are unable to see our own vulnerabilities and temptations clearly. We need a God to show them to us. And more than that, we need a God who not only sees but acts to take our feet off of this path toward destruction and place us on the road toward health, away from those sins that are latent within every one of our hearts. The illusion of control, thinking, God, I've got this. I can handle it, is the first step to descent into destruction. Are you walking on that path? The second step on this pathway that we see is the seduction of, of indulgence. It's especially necessary for you and for me to plead to the Lord from a desperate heart because of the deceptive and indulgent nature of our characters and even of our culture. You know, David's action with Bathsheba didn't ha happen in a vacuum. It came on the heels of perhaps 20 years of sexual appetite in David that sought fulfillment. Whenever he set his eyes Upon a woman, he wanted a new sexual partner. He took her and made her his wife. It happened again and again in the pages of the scriptures. And he did it with the complicity of his culture. It's okay. It's fine. Go ahead and whatever you set your eyes upon, make it yours. But I hope you realize that that polygamy violates God's norm for intimate marriage between a man and a woman. It violates God's norm and design for marriage, and it violates God's established design for the king, especially to the king. In Deuteronomy 17, God said this, He must not take for himself many wives, or his heart will be led astray. You see, the problem wasn't first and foremost the sexual sin. The problem was first and foremost with his heart that was being led astray into sexual sin. And that's exactly what happened to David. His heart was led to an insatiable appetite for women from a place that longed to be adored and approved and the object of desire. He wanted to be the delight of someone's eyes. And that good desire was twisted and it began to eat him alive from the inside out. Friends, desires that demand relief in the form of adoration of other people, seduce us into all manner of sin. 
if your heart feels this this thirst to have someone, another human being, give to you and meet that crucial longing of your soul to be loved faithfully and perfectly loved, to give you a sense of purpose in this life, if you're looking for another human being to give that to you, then you will live a perpetually insecure existence. Because no one can. No one can meet that place in your heart. No one is able to love you as you need to be loved. No one is able to be perfectly faithful to you as you desire to be. have someone love you and pursue you in that way. And if you long to receive it from another human being, then you will perpetually be a person of soul thirst. Because no one can give it to you. And it will destroy your life if you give your heart to searching for it from someone else. We don't have, in our culture at least, multiple partners, multiple spouses to lead us astray. And it may be uncomfortable to talk about, but there is a place in our culture that we're seduced to indulge because our culture winks at a heart that's led astray and feeds the lie of being the object of desire, a cheap thrill of intimacy without any true relationship. Of course, I'm talking about the pornography industry. Feeds that same part of our hearts, that same part of our lives, and it leads to a sexual addiction, and it will rob you of what your heart most desires. Here's some statistics from around 2006. They haven't been compiled in full since 2006 but then the u.s porn industry not the worldwide the u.s porn industry generated a revenue of 13 billion dollars a year 13 billion to put that in perspective that's more than the revenue of all the professional baseball football and basketball teams in the u.s combined according to one source 68% of young adult men and 18% of young adult women admit to using porn at least once a week. 67% of young men and 49% of young women agree that viewing porn is an acceptable way to express one's sexuality. Further, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say that they watch porn at least once a month, every month. This is a problem in our culture. And it's a problem with us. It's a problem where we have been seduced into this indulgence of something that will destroy us from the inside out. Why is it so dangerous? And why is it so inviting to us? It is because it offers something it can never deliver. Pornography pretends to offer an intimacy, a a cheap intimacy, a sense of fulfillment of a desire of your heart that you've been created to enjoy. It seduces you and me to feel as though we are desired, as though we are the object of someone's delight. And it doesn't cost us the hard work of relationship to get it. That's why it's so dangerous. But it can never deliver. Intimacy involves not just knowing, but being known. It involves loving and being loved by someone else. And you can never get that kind of intimacy through a screen. But it pretends to offer it to you all the while it destroys your heart. 
It is so dangerous to us because as a man or as a woman, if we are tempted to give that piece of our heart, that desire for intimacy to a place that it can never be fulfilled, we lose an ability to give it to a place where it can be fulfilled. The more we give our hearts or our drive to seek intimacy in a place like pornography, the less we will have space in our heart for the proper places like the Lord and our families. Pornography and sexual sins damage and destroy families because we're drawn to give our hearts to places they don't belong. And the degree to which we give our hearts to those places, we have that much less to give within our own families. I'm going to say it as plainly as I can. The more interested we are in pornography, the less interested you will be in your family. I can't say it any more plainly than that. The more you give your heart to the sexual sin of pornography, the less of your desires for intimacy you will have available for the people who love you and want to have relationship, intimate relationship with you. And it will destroy your life. And every one of us are capable. Especially when our culture makes it so easy to overlook that sin, to excuse it, to seduce us into indulging that sin. Unless any of us are thinking, you know, I know that I do that every now and again, but I can handle it. I've got it under control. No, you don't. No, you don't. You are in peril And you are well on your way over the road of destruction. Get off. Turn to the Lord in repentance and let him set you free. That path of destruction starts with the illusion of control. It continues with the seduction of indulgence. And we have to know that once we're on this pathway, sin compounds. That's the nature of sin. It it compounds it. It makes itself worse and worse. We see it in David's wandering eye that led him to do unspeakable things. He turned over and over in his mind as he was watching Bathsheba on the rooftop. I wonder what it would be like to feel desired by that woman. It's a very clear progression, that lustful desire. He saw her bathing on verse 2, and then he decided to pursue her in verse 3. He sent one of his servants to go find out who she is. He acted upon this desire and brought more people into his betrayal, more people into his treachery, more people into his sin. He entangled the people who were sworn to obey his orders. He brought them into his web, them into his network of betrayal and treachery and sin. And then in verse 3, David sent a servant to go find out about Bathsheba. And this incredibly brave servant reports back to him. Isn't this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That was incredibly brave because by listing those names, that servant was trying to stop David in his tracks. The names were important. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, and Eliam, her father, were two of David's mighty men that are listed a few chapters later in the book of 2 Samuel. David's mighty men was a band of 30 soldiers who pledged their life and their death to protect David when he was running for Saul. These were David's special forces soldiers. These were the ones who said, David, we're aligning our lives with you, and we know that it might cost our families their lives to be aligned with you. 
we're putting our lives and our family's lives on the line to serve you, David, rather than Saul as he's trying to kill you. And he took them. It would be like one of you coming to me if I asked about inappropriately someone in our congregation and you were to say, you realize that's the daughter of one of your elders, right? You realize you're asking about the wife of one of your best friends, right? This servant was intending to stop David in his tracks and see what he was doing, see the wickedness, see the destruction in what David was contemplating in his heart. He was seeking to call him back. And what's worse than that, David is, uh, Uriah is again and again called a Hittite. Did you notice it's repeated over and over? There's a reason. The reason is so that the narrator helps you and me get the point. Uriah was a convert. He was a Hittite. He didn't belong to the people of Israel. He was brought in by conversion. And several commentators suggest that it's repeated again and again because David very well, very well may have been the man who led him to the Lord. David was his close shepherd. David was his discipler in the faith. David brought him in and now David has taken this man's wife and he killed one of his most loyal servants. You see the compounding nature of sin? It starts small. You may consider it harmless. It's just another look. I mean, what's the big deal? It's just a look. But in the seedbed of deceit and our thirst for satisfaction, our desire for relief within our hearts, sin is compounding. It may start as a simple desire, a simple thirst for relief and satisfaction and for a feeling of, I just want to escape the brokenness and the difficulty in my life for just a little bit. And soon enough we find that it is bloomed into a destructive place in our lives. How do we get off? How do we get off this path of descent from the illusion of control to the seduction of indulgence to the how sin is compounded as it destroys us? How do we get off? Well, we get off this path by seeing God's eye is upon us. God exposed David's secret. He brought that sin out from the darkness into the light, into the eye of the Almighty, and that is good. One of the most terrible and the most beautiful verses in this entire chapter is verse 27 the narrator writes when the morning was over david sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing that david had done displeased the lord a literal translation of that last sentence is this david had done evil in the sight of the lord David's actions, he felt, were hidden. They were concealed. Just a few people knew about his plan. He thought nobody else saw. But God did. Did you notice that through this entire episode, the entirety of 2 Samuel chapter 11, God is silent. He does not speak, but the silence is deafening. He didn't speak, but God wasn't blind. Because his eyes were attentive to his child, his servant. He saw everything that had happened. 
And David had done evil in the sight, in the eyes of the Lord. And that gaze of God upon his servant can be terrifying. It can be unnerving. It can, be, it can undo us to know that God sees everything that we do. But that gaze can also provide an incredible measure of comfort. To know that God's eyes are never removed from us as his children. Even when we have wandered into the depths of depravity and sin, God's eyes still seek his children. It's an incredible blessing to know that God's eye was still on David. Even as David concocted these despicable acts, the Lord saw his wandering child and he didn't turn away from David. God saw and God loved David too much to let this sin consume his life. So God came after him. God pursued him. God sent his word to David through Nathan. He called him back. God hung in there with David when he just exposed his sin. And it wasn't for the purpose of shame. God exposed David's sin to bring him to freedom, to bring him cleansing, to bring him healing. God exposed his life to bring David change and transformation. It was an incredible blessing that God's eyes were on David even when he walked down this pathway of descent. And why would God do that? Why would God keep his eye on David when he did such a despicable thing? Why would he keep his eye on us when we wander down the path of sin? Well, it's because of that bedrock of the foundation of God's promise that we talked about last week in Second Samuel 7 where God had promised to be David's father and never take his steadfast love away from David. Remember we talked about that word, that Hebrew word chesed, that steadfast love, which means it's a, a love that is born out of sacrifice. It's a love that, that is purchased by blood, a blood-bought love, a blood-bought commitment that God had toward David. And it was because God's blood-bought love rested upon David, God's eyes were never taken off of his servant. Our faithful father bound himself to David by covenant. He pledged himself. And for you and for me, we stand in line of that promise because the ultimate son of David was the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith, you and I are united to the Lord Jesus. We are included in that promise. And by faith, we are wanted by Christ. We are in Christ, Paul says. In Christ, we are secure. In Christ, we are held. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we are being made more holy because God has made a promise and He will not break it. Lord Jesus went to the cross where He bled and He died and He was raised from the dead to defeat those enemies of our sin that lurk within our hearts. And even when we're at the bottom, even when we're in the depth of our sin, the bedrock of our faith is not turning our lives around and, and putting ourselves in God's good graces again by performing for Him. The bedrock of our faith is God's unrelenting grasp upon His children that He's given to us a blood-bought love. And it was the Lord Jesus' blood that bought His love for us. God's eye is never off of us as His children. Not to wag His finger at us, but in order to love and watch over and bless and, yes, cleanse us when we've wandered astray. And that's our confidence. 
Our confidence is that our Lord loves us and pursues us enough to expose our rebellious and harmful ways because He's made a promise to keep us. My response and your response is to turn in repentance. To turn away from all of these things that we indulge, all of this cheap satisfaction that we pursue in this life so that our souls may be filled with the the water of life that only the Spirit of God can give us in our hearts and change us from the inside out. The God who sees is the same God who proclaims that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And wherever you are today, if you're wandering in the darkness of night, maybe you're wandering down this path of descent, you're watching your life be destroyed before your very eyes, maybe you're wondering, is God going to keep love me? Will God drop me if He really sees what I'm doing? That's you. Remember the promise. Remember the promise that is blood-bought for you and for me. God comes to us to speak and shout in our pain that He will counsel us with His eye upon us. And His love is committed to us by the blood of His own Son. And He will set your feet by His Spirit on a new path. It is His grace that picks us up and puts us on a new path where we might find life. Where do you need that today? Where might you be called to step off of the path you're walking toward destruction and instead with His eye upon you and His powerful Spirit within you to set your feet toward life rather than death? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that You have us under your gaze. Your watchful eye is never taken from your children. And on the one hand, Lord, that is terrifying to me. It's terrifying to us. But on the other hand, what a great comfort to know that whatever we are found out to be doing, you knew it already and you loved us still. And I pray, Jesus, that that knowledge of our exposure of our hearts before you. Your spirit would use that to turn our feet to a path of life and holiness. To turn our feet to a path of repentance from those deep sins within our hearts. That we might walk with you and know that we are the apple of your eye. The delight of your eyes. We are adored by our Heavenly Father. May that truth sing to our hearts. And may we not search for it anywhere else. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.